0: Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I believe there are a few more notes on my left, or your right. Hopefully, I have my sermon notes. I do? All right. The passages chapter 10, 1 through 18, probably will just get to verse 14. Maybe. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, which can never by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers having once been cleansed, when no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it's written of me, to do your will, O God, after saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, You have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, Which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Father, again, as we approach your word, we continue to seek to worship you. And so we pray that your spirit would give us grace to understand your word, grace to receive it and to prize it, and grace to do it. Give me the grace to preach clearly and accurately with purposefulness and earnestness that you might be glorified. For Christ's sake, amen. I am a... Slow learner. It's true, I, I learn very slowly. I can remember my father teaching me how to drive, and he was very patient with me. V- very simple things. So if you're learning how to drive, normally when you pull out into a street, at least I was taught, you look left, and then you look right, and then you look left again. Believe it or not, it took me a while to get that down. <laughs> And so I would ask my father many times. So i look left, and then what do I do? Dad, can I take some notes? Can I write this down? And he was very patient with me as we went over this. And it took me several opportunities going driving to learn. You look left, you look right, and you look left. And then when I was 15, my parents allowed I got my driver's permit, and I could drive. But my dad would pound it into my head. If you don't want to get into an accident when you pull out into the street, look left, you look right, and you look left. He must have told me this, you know, over I'm sure well over a hundred times. Because I'm a, a slow learner, and I think all of us in some areas can be slow learners, but it is this repetition of a a principle that he was teaching me that stuck with me. And now it's hard for me. Now I have to be careful because I can be like, wait, <laughs> when I'm trying to pull under the street, and if I don't look, you know, all these certain directions, then you know, I have to. Do, I have to do it. But it's because of this repetition, over and over and over again. There's a teacher from Dallas Theological Seminary named Howard Hendricks, and he's written many books on teaching. And one of the books he wrote on teaching is a effective method of teaching is repetition. You, you, you have to repeat. Hopefully, it will be in creative ways and not just the same thing, taught in the same way over and over and over again. But for all of us to get uh, principles or truth, to get something, uh, it usually takes multiple times of teaching before it stays in our hearts. And the Bible itself is primarily about what? It's a very basic question. The Bible is primarily about what? very sophisticated answer, God, right? It's primarily about God <laughs> and how to know him through God the Son. That's primarily what the Bible is about, God and how to know him through his Son, Jesus Christ. And it unfolds that from the beginning to the end and all kinds of different ways. But it's teaching that truth over and over and over and over again. And it's the same idea, principle, in the book of Hebrews. And I've though I've studied and I've read, I never have taught through the, the book of Hebrews. And in a sense, I'm getting kind of tired of the same truth. Because I want something more creative. I want something that has more pizzazz. More shocking. You know, like 10 steps on how to get married. Or, or 15 steps on how to have perfect kids. That's what I want to teach on. That's really what, what I want to understand and apply. But if you go through Hebrews, especially chapters 8 through 10, it's, it, it is very repetitive. It's blood, 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 and more blood, and more blood, and blood, and blood, and blood, and blood. Sacrifice, 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 and death, and death, and death, and forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. There is, at least in my heart, and maybe in your hearts, this desire for me to want something more, which is not necessarily Wrong, but if I'm not careful, I can want something more and be so fast that I'm kind of forgetting or not relying upon the basics. So if I'm in a car and I'm going out onto the intersection and I forget to look left and right and left, but I just bolt out there, what could happen? I could crash. Same thing with the idea of the atonement, of the Death of Christ, of His substitutionary atonement. If I'm not continually reminding myself, meditating, worshiping God over Christ's death for sinners on the cross, then it could be that I'm going to have a terrible accident in my life. And so this is why the book of Hebrews is written. It's written primarily to believers. That's what it says in chapter 6. The Spirit of God says in Hebrews chapter 6, I believe better things of you. I, I believe that you are really are saved, but you're being tempted to go back to the, the Old Testament sacrificial the Le- Levitical system. You, you came to trust Jesus. Life's gotten harder. People are saying your life is harder now. Some of you have been put in prison. You've had your, your household goods robbed from you. You're getting ready to, to give up. Continue forward in Christ. Remember, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets, he's better than Joshua, he's better than the Sabbath, he's better than all the priests, he's even better than all the offerings. And Then we come to chapter 9 through 1018, what focuses on the blood work of Christ. And then after this, verses 19 to the end of the book is going to be mostly practical. But before we get really practical, there is this foundation of Jesus Christ is better than anything else. Focus on Him. Trust in Him. So we have said that this section, chapter 9 through 1018, is basically build your faith upon that blood work of Jesus so you go forward in the faith and never forsake Him. To go forward in the faith, you have to always be looking at Christ. Whether you're stopping, whether you're going, whatever you're doing, Always be meditating, worshiping, being thankful for this atonement, this blood death work of Jesus Christ. And we said there's several building blocks, uh, at least three. We said, first of all, build your faith upon the blood work of Christ by glorifying it when you deal with your sin. We all sin. As Christians, we are made more aware of our sin. How we deal with it as we keep going back to the cross. We glory in the fact that the atonement that Jesus made for our sin is so wonderful. All my sin is forgiven. The blood of Jesus cleanses me of all my sin. And so I glory in his work, not in my repentance. I repent and I confess my sin, but I'm not glorifying over what I did, but what he did. The second building block is we prepare for a future judgment by looking at the cross. Bible says we will all face judgment. Now, for the believers, it's not a judgment of condemnation. It's not a judgment for sin. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about, and Romans uh, 12, uh, 10, we'll all stand before, uh, sorry, Romans 14, we'll all stand before Christ for our reward. But we don't do that primarily by saying, looking, I'm going to get better in my life. I'm going to really seek to try harder. We should get better. We should seek to try harder. But the foundation of my future when I die is I'm not looking at me. I'm looking at Christ and what he did on the cross. That's my hope. My hope is not what I need to do. My hope is what he already did on the cross. And then this morning, we're going to look at this, number three. The third building block, build your faith upon the blood work of Jesus Christ by trusting the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. We build our faith upon the fact that Jesus Christ and his substitutionary work of atonement, dying on the cross for all sinners who trust him, that is sufficient and it is supreme. And you see this at the beginning of verse 1 with verse 10 when it says 4. It's going to give this, this explanation of all that was said before in chapter 9. It's going to explain it. Now, when I talk about trusting the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, what does that word trust mean? What does the word believe mean? There are many people that might say, I believe in Jesus. Maybe they would even say, I, I trust Jesus. What does that mean? We've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it a lot more when we get to Hebrews 11. Realize Hebrews 10 is going to get practical, and then Hebrews 11 is going to talk about faith. Why? Because you have to have faith in that blood work, and the death and the substitutionary atonement of Christ. There is something that you believe in, somebody that you trust. Well, what does that mean? Well, just very quickly... It means acknowledging, acquiescing and adoring. You you acknowledge who Jesus is, you acquiesce to him, and you adore all that he is for you. That that's part of this trusting. So you are not adoring, acquiescing. And acknowledging your ability to keep the law. Look how faithful I was. And I, I'm trusting in, in those things. No, I, I adore, I acquiesce, and acknowledge the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ for my sin. That's what trust means. Now this involves, first, never going past the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. We've said this third building block for us to keep going forward in the faith. We we have to be careful that we don't run so fast, that we don't run so hard, that we get ahead of ourselves and are not stopping and looking at Jesus Christ because then we could get smashed and be steamrolled because we're not really focused on the right thing. Well, What what does that involve? What does that look like? Well, it involves never going past the supremacy and sufficiency of of Jesus Christ we go forward through it we, we go forward in life always to the gospel we never simply look at the real, real view mirror, have you ever tried to drive that way, like the whole time you're driving just look in your rear view mirror what would happen if, if you did that I don't know why I have car metaphors in it well, why would you drive that way, what would happen if you're always looking in the real rear view mirror, what would happen you would also crash If that's where the gospel is at for you, if the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is back here and not here, then you're going to have a problem. And all the while, you could be blaming many other people, many other things in your life. But the main issue is you're not focused on Christ. This is even what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 say, right? Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. After he expounds on all of these things about Jesus. So there is this drum beat. I always thought the whole book, there is this rhythm, this drum. It's Christ is sufficient, Christ is supreme. Okay, got it down. Again, always, boom. Christ is sufficient, Christ is supreme. Thought the whole book over and over and over again, and really throughout the whole Bible. 'Cause it's reminding us that we can never take our eyes, the eyes of our heart or our mind, off of Christ, and we never put him here. He's always here. Always. That's what the book of Hebrews is doing. This is what this passage is doing. It's essential. Again, that's and we've mentioned this before, that's why you have in Colossians, fix your eyes on the things which are above, or Paul says in Philippians that he glories in Christ Jesus. There is this holy occupation that we have with Jesus Christ that we never let go of. It's essential, like like water and air. Right? We we've used this metaphor before. You can go three days maybe without water, maybe forty plus days without eating. But what if you tried not to breathe? Don't do it right now. But how long can you go without breathing? Probably not very long. I I think I can go, maybe if I tried really hard, I think I can go a minute and a half, maybe, like underwater. I I think if I really tried hard and just relaxed myself, I I think I could do that. But but after that, I'm I'm dead. I'm, I'm gone. The book of Hebrews and the whole Bible is saying that the... Atonement of Jesus, God the Son, became, becoming a man, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for every sinner that would ever trust him, rising again, ascending, sitting at the right hand of God, To not just to know about that, but to adore that, to acquiesce to that, to acknowledge that it's supreme and sufficient. That's more essential than drinking water and breathing air. Because you could breathe water. Hope I got that right. You, you could drink water and breathe air and go to hell. But if you adore and acquiesce and acknowledge that the death of Christ for sinners is more sufficient and more supreme than anything you or anybody else could do for your sin, then you have eternal glory forever and ever. And so, right away, this third point of. Trusting in the supremacy of Christ is that we have this idea that we realize I live in a dark and poisoned land and in this savage land. I have this one thing, main thing in my heart and head, and that is that Jesus is the best thing there is for me. He is all that I need and he is what I need and the most of what I need is, is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so that's why you have John 6, right? Drinking and, and eating, talking about Christ. I need all of him. All of me needs all of him. And I don't go past him. We can even say, I need him more today than I did when I first became a Christian. Do you feel that way? I've been walking with Jesus uh, 13, i 50, I don't know. How long? 35, maybe 40 years I think I need, sincerely, truly, I think I need to be more focused on Jesus now than I did then. I think that's true. It should be true, I think, for all of us. That the more mature, the more you grow in Christ, the more you see of your sin, and the more that you see, I need to be even more focused on Christ. do you need Christ more or less today? Can anybody say, I need less of Christ? (laughs) No. We all need more of Christ. This also involves, underneath this third building block, this also involves, more explicitly just with this passage, trusting Christ's sufficiency. And again, this trust can be the idea of you're, you're realizing who Jesus is, you're relinquishing yourself to who Jesus is, and you're relishing who Jesus is. That is this trust of his sufficiency. I realize I'm not sufficient, no, no priest, no pastor, no politician, no reformed movement, no non-reformed movement. No philosophy and how to educate my kids is sufficient to pay the price of my sin, but only Jesus Christ. And so I realize that, I relinquish to him and his work, and then I relish, oh, I taste and see that Jesus Christ is good. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That is this idea of, of trust. Trust. Now, we're going to look at this, this idea of trusting Christ's efficiency uh, theologically, bi- uh, biblically, and then a summary. And that's really what this passage does. Verses 1 through 4 is mainly uh, theological, or you can even say logical if you want to. And then verses 5, basically down through 9, is biblical. He's going to give biblical support. And then verses 10 would be a type of a theological a summary. And if we have time, then we'll go a little bit past that. But first, trusting Christ's sufficiency. Again, this is not just saying, I believe Christ is sufficient. Yes, you realize that, but then you relinquish your your will, your foundation for how you are saved and stay saved to him, to Christ. And then you relish it. You adore Him. So first, logically and theologically. You can look at verse 1, and there is this great statement you see in verse 1. There is so much that's happening in this first four verses here. You can see it says, For the law, since it only has a shadow. The word shadow is very emphatic. It comes first in the Greek text. So this text is saying that the law and... Primarily, in this case, that Levitical law, that Levitical system, it was a shadow. Their real substance, their real image, is Christ. you can see that in verse 1. There is this contrast between the shadow that is reflecting the good which is to come. But it's not the very form, that is, image, icon, is this word form. But it's not the real substance of that which is the true good thing. The law wasn't wasn't bad, it wasn't evil, it wasn't wrong, but it was created by God as a reflection of the good that was to come. And so these beloved people are being tempted to go back to a shadow. Why would you want to go back to a shadow? That's the point that, that that's being made here. But not not just this idea of of shadow, but even the inability of the Levitical sacrificial system. It's a shadow, but it's also unable or enable. And this is repeated throughout this whole passage. Remember the, the Greek word for power? Does anybody remember the Greek word for power or? Uh, uh, ability, dunatai. So this is the word that's often repeated here, adunatai There's no ability, no power. It, it, it's unable. We can see it here, which can never, verse 1, by the same sacrifice, can never. It, it's not able to do. It can't do it. And we'll see it even more as we go throughout this passage, it's not able to be able to, to cleanse, to cover, and to crush the sin of those who believe in God's promises. The, the Vitical law is not able to do that. It, it can't. And you can even see in verse two, it says, because if it could, then these people's consciousness would be cleansed, would, would be cleared. You can see that at the end of verse 2. Because it's unable to cleanse the consciousness, then there's a, another term, and that's the idea of continually. Because it's a shadow, it's not the best thing or the real thing, it's just preparatory, that is the, the Levitical sacrificial system. Because it was unable to really cleanse and cover and crush the... The sin of those who believed, it had to be offered, the the blood of, the sacrifices of goats and bulls, it had to be done. How often? All the time. Continually. Unable, continually shadow. These are theological motifs and themes that are being emphasized in these first four verses. That's why verse 3 says, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year over and over again throughout all the months and days and then once a year that there would have to be atonement for sin okay lord thank you for forgiving me there's an atonement for my sin um you still have to come back next week next month next year but i offered yeah but it's it's impossible you can look at verse four it's impossible for the blood for, for the substitutionary death of an animal to take care of your sin because they're not made in the image of god They can't be a perfect substitute. There's somebody, something else beyond this. So the Levitical system is a a shadow. It's not bad. It's just not the final thing. And therefore, it's unable to crush, to cover, to cleanse your sin. And it has to be offered continually over and over and over again. And then, he's going to ground this and what the Bible says. He's going to ground it in, in Scripture. But go back and look at, I want you to get these ideas. You can see in verse 1, continually, you can see can never. That's the not able. Otherwise, would they not have ceased? It's impossible. It's unable for the Levitical sacrificial system to really cover, cleanse, and crush the sin of believers so that God's wrath is satisfied. And that's why they have to be offered over and over and over and over again. And you believers are wanting to go back to that kind of system? Why why would you do that? Focus on Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to ground this the spirit of god is going to ground this in scripture so first he says theologically focus on christ <laughs> because of the any the efficiency of the levitical system not that it was evil but it was preparation it was a an image a reflection of what was to come and that's the messiah and the bible itself says this and so Brett read Psalm 40, and here the Spirit of God is going to quote from Psalm 40. And note verse 5, therefore when he comes into the world, he says, So David wrote Psalm 40, but the Spirit of God in Hebrews 10.5 is basically saying that Jesus said this. David wrote Psalm 40, but it was the Spirit of Christ That was speaking through David, and so David wrote the inspired word of God, but it was the Spirit of Christ, Jesus, who was saying this. And in many ways, Psalm 40 is about Jesus. And this is just not somebody's opinion. This is what the Spirit of God is saying here and in Hebrews. So it speaks of the inspiration of Psalm 40. And also the Christ dynamic of Psalm 40. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, and then he quotes Psalm 40. So basically, what he's saying to to these, again, these beloved believers who are being tempted, remember the context, they're being tempted to leave Christ because their life didn't get easier, it got harder. Some of them are in prison, some of them have lost their own personal possessions, they're being persecuted. And so if you go back to your Jewish roots, life might get easier, right? If you say Jesus is Lord, you could have your head chopped off or or, or be crucified. You have to say Caesar is Lord. So maybe you should just go back to the Levitical system. Even the Romans offer sacrifices, right? Many religions offered sacrifices. Come back to your Jewish roots, And so here, this passage is saying it's biblical to pursue Christ, to trust in Jesus. Verse 5. Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. It's really a great statement that's here. Look at verse 5. And isn't this so, so true? And You see this in Psalms, you see this in Amos, you see this in First Samuel, I think it's 15. And again, it's repeated three times. That is sacrifice and offering, this Levitical system. It's not ultimately what pleases God. You see that verse 5, right? You see that verse 6. And then even you see it in verse 8. That is, sacrifices and offerings, and hope but offerings, and sacrifice for your sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. It's repeated three times. Three times this passage is saying, God ultimately, the ultimate thing he doesn't want is a dead, burnt animal. That's not ultimately what he wants. You can offer a, a dead, burnt animal on the altar, and it not please God. And what had happened if the Jews, again, you see this in Psalm 15 with Samuel and the book of Amos and many psalms, is that they would, and really throughout the whole Old Testament, there might be a sacrifice that's offered, but it's more, it's kind of like how maybe some of us would do the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've had a bad week, you know, all kinds of, uh, maybe sin plagued you that week, and then you come and you do the Lord's Supper, or maybe it's you hear a sermon preached, or you seeing in the choir, or whatever it is. And you think that by doing that, that pleases God. You haven't really dealt with your sin. You know, you're not in your heart confessing your sin and humbling yourself before God and really meeting with him and getting right with him. You're just doing this outward, outward ritual to somehow please God. And so here in verses, really five, through eight, again, three times, the Spirit of God is saying, look at verse 8, even... And the parentheses, which are offered according to the law, you can go through the right steps that a person could of offering a sacrifice. But if your heart is not right with God, God is not somehow automatically pleased with that. Right In the book of Amos, they would mistreat people, maybe uh, the Pharisees, whoever it was, the leading Jews, they would mistreat people and then offer a sacrifice and then keep mistreating people. Well, would God be pleased with that kind of sacrifice? No. Because those priests weren't right with God. Those people weren't right with God. It's not that they had to be perfect. You can look at David in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. David was a very imperfect man. He lied, committed adultery, had multiple wives, which was against God's word, and conspired to commit murder of more than one person. Was he saved? You know, if you look today at David, I think many of us would say that guy couldn't be saved. (laughs) He's a murderer, liar, fornicator, adulterer. He can't be saved. He surely shouldn't run for political office. And then over God's people? but yet his sin was covered, cleansed, and crushed. Why? Why would God accept such a man? It wasn't because he was so good. It was because he was—he confessed with a broken heart of repentance that he needed to have his sin atoned. You can read Psalm 51. Lord, if you desire to completely obliterate me and judge me, I deserve it. How blessed is the man whose sins are covered. It was because he wasn't trusting in what he did, but in the provision that God would supply. This is why this is repeated three times, is that God is saying to these beloved believers here in this church, our churches that these Hebrew believers belong to, you think that by going and Having an animal killed, throat slit, blood being poured out, having that burned up, that somehow God's gonna go, oh yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, yes, 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 I would prefer it to be medium well and not well done, okay? I I don't, is that what God is saying? No, God wants your heart to trust Him with His solution. And His solution now is Jesus Christ for your sin. That's even why Verse five says, therefore, when he comes into the world, talking about the mission of God the Son, when he comes in to the world, and look what it says at the end of verse seven, or all of verse seven, rather. Then I said, quoting from Psalm forty, and it's been applied to David, but also to the Messiah. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book; it's written of me to do your will, O God. And the scroll the book, some say Ezra, some say in Jeremiah. Not completely sure. But you can see what's talking about the incarnation. I have come, ideas into this world, and I've come to do your will, O God. And verse 9, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. That is, there comes a, a king that is greater than, than David. There comes a priest that's greater than, than Aaron and even Samuel. There comes a prophet that's greater than Moses and Elijah. And he comes to do the will of God. To do your will, O God. Remember, even Jesus said that to his disciples. You know, my bread is to do the will of God. That's my food, to do God's will. You know, I don't think I've ever said that ever in my life. They're my, my bread, that my, my basic essential that I need is God's will. Maybe, you know, my essentials are chocolate chip cookie or those dark chocolate oatmeal chunk bars from Costco. That's what keeps me going. But Jesus Christ is saying here, what keeps me going, my, my basic essential, my, my purpose and my very nature is to do the will of God the Father. And how that is working with verses 5 all the way through 8 is that wasn't the idea, the the motif, the, the principle, the dynamic of even David, of any prophet or priest or king. That is, their basic essential purpose was not, number one, I seek to always please God all the time. They, they may say that, but they were unable to do that. But Christ was able to do that. And so that, that old Levitical system, he satisfied and fulfilled. So it was done away with. And now is the new one. Now what is, I think, incredible when you look at this, look at verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified. This is the summary. By this will. What will is this? Well, he just talked about this This will. Jesus Christ, that is God the Son, who forever knew only glory and peace and harmony, the the glories of heaven from eternity past, took on human nature, true human nature. We see that in Hebrews chapter 2. Really became flesh and blood like a person, though without sin. And lived a life where he wasn't trusting primarily on his own deity, but God the Father, God the Spirit, and the, the Word of God. And it was God's plan that he live a perfect life, die on the cross for sinners, rise again, and ascend and sit at the right hand of God the Father, to always intercede for us. This was, this will, that's verse 9 when it says, Behold, I have come to do your will, and verse 7, to do your will. What was the will and plan of God for Jesus? It was to die on the cross for sinners, for all those who would trust him. So verse 10, by this will, by by this plan of God, that God would intervene into human affairs and die on the cross for sinners. To take my sin upon himself. That the Lion of God would become the, the Lamb of God. That the King and Judge would be the Savior. Remember, all that's been said already about Jesus Christ, that God himself, that the creator would be crushed by my sin, is what this means in verse 10, by this will. And by this will, we have been sanctified. It is by by his plan and purpose and desire. We, if you are trusting in Jesus, you've been set apart unto himself, made a saint. So most, I want to say most, well, most saints, like uh, St. Saint Teresa, most saints you hear about probably are not really saints. Saints are those people that God elects and that they trust Jesus Christ alone to be saved. And God sets them apart. This idea when it says sanctified is you have been and, and are now treated as special by God. That's the idea of sanctified, uh, holified, set apart, made special unto him. Remember, even in 1 Corinthians, the the Corinthians, they were so messed up and had so many issues. God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, that they are what? They are saints. I can believe that in the book of Philippians, I can believe those are saints. In the book of Ephesians, I can believe those are saints. But probably if I went to the church of Corinth, I would never say you guys are saints. God says they're saints. Not because they're so good, but because Jesus Christ is so good. And then because the work of Christ is applied to their life. So their sin is cleansed, covered, and crushed. And they're set apart unto God as special to him. And so are you, having trusted Jesus. And so are they, as having trusted Jesus. By this plan and purpose of God, this happened, and I love this, through the offering, that is the voluntary sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, right? He get, It's clarifying that Jesus wasn't some kind of ghost. The Messiah, God the Son, became a real person and really died on the cross for sinners. And he did that one time for, for all that means for every single person that would ever trust him, whoever they are, whatever their background, that person's sin, my sin, your sin, can be covered and cleansed and crushed because of the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. Once for all. Now here when it says once for all, it's basically the word hapax. Have you ever heard me say Hapax Loganomen. Have you ever heard me say that? If you listen to MacArthur every now and then, you might hear that word. Hapax Loganomen. Lego means what? Speak, to, to, to say word. Lego my ego. Right? Some of you people that are my age, you might remember. Lego my ego. Lego. L-E-G-O is Lego. Hapax means one. So, Hapax legomenon means you have some words in the Bible that are just used one time and nowhere else. It's almost like Paul or Peter, whoever, made up the word, right? Just made the word up. Well, this word here, once for all, is the word Hapax. Hapax. That is, Christ had to die how many times? Just one time. And context, for these beloved Jews that became Christian, they're used to, if I don't go to Mass next week, I could go to hell. And if you were, of course, they would say, if I don't go to the synagogue or if I don't go and offer my sacrifice, then I'm going to go to hell. I've met many Muslims that say, Tom, do you know that you're going to heaven? Yes, absolutely. Do you know, I say to them, that you're going to heaven? No, I don't. I I don't know for sure. Tom, how, how can you know for sure? Because Jesus Christ died once for all and didn't have to do it over and over and over again because he is God. And he died and rose again. This is what this text is saying. Once for all time. And though we do believe that Scripture talks about limited atonement. That term perhaps may not be the best, that, that phrase. It is a definite atonement that effectually saves every person that trusts in Jesus Christ based upon God's grace and God's election. Once for all, does it mean that everybody's sin is automatically paid for? But everybody that trusts in Jesus Christ is Whatever your background, whatever sin you've committed, it can be covered, it can be cleansed, it can be crushed, it can be dealt with. And the idea in verse 10 is this. We we have been treated this way, and we are continually treated this way. We have been made special, includes this payment of Christ to your life. Now... There can be, I think, in the Christian life, and perhaps there was for these beloved people. And we'll see, as we go through the rest of Hebrews, many things that can distract us. And it can be guilt. At times, the guilt of our sin can distract us, even as believers. And we can seek out many remedies to deal with this guilt. And I'm reminded of the book of Colossians, where perhaps the same thing was happening on how these Colossians would deal with maybe their sin. And he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to a food or a drink or a festival or a moon or a Sabbath day. Uh, Verse 18, self-abasement and worship of angels. Verse 20, Submitting yourselves to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, verse 23, are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So whether it's to get rid of your guilt or whether it's to overcome sin, it's not about being an aesthetic or a... Or a legalistic person. Or even given over to mysticism. So that you have dreams and visions of angels. I've told you in the past. I had a man visit our house here in Puyallup. That told me that Jesus would appear to him. And angels would stand beside him. And he would speak to them all the time. And he, he was, in his mind, very spiritual. And very godly. I, I'm pretty sure he was not saved at all. And he, he rejected the gospel. But I'm saying that Hebrews is saying and Colossians is saying that for the believer we can seek to deal with our guilt by many avenues and many ways when the way to deal with our guilt of a believer is not by taking our eyes off Christ and looking in the real view mirror or not even look you know where we're going but just slow down stop pause Go to Christ, talk to Christ about your sin, confess that sin to Him, and do what David says in Psalm twenty-five. If anybody knows about sin and how to deal with it, it should be David. Psalm twenty-five, he says, "For Your namesake, O Lord, forgive my sin." Have have you have I ever prayed that way? Will you go to Jesus and say, "My sin is so great for Your glory, forgive my sin, God, to make Yourself glorious." Forgive my sin. What would that that mean in this context? Because your blood work, because your substitutionary death on the cross is so sufficient, and it didn't have to be continually applied, and just one time you died, one time you rose again. It never has to be done again, because you're God of God, King of kings. Therefore, because of that, Lord, forgive my sin and restore the joy of my salvation unto me, not because I'm worthy, but because you're worthy, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And then he gives you peace. This is what this passage is saying to these Hebrews and to you and I. Christianity ultimately is not about any Christian celebrity. And it's not about a Christian hero. I would confess, really, in my Christian life, though I am thankful for them, There can be, if we're not careful, especially as a younger Christian, this almost fanatical fan club of some Christian celebrity preachers, whoever they might be. It could be Calvin to somebody that's living. And we could become so absorbed into them, that what I think about is, oh, I have to hear the sermon from this, oh, I have to have this person's sermon cassettes, (laughs) DVDs, MP3s. But really what we need, according to this passage, is to be, though it's not wrong to listen to them, we need to be focused on Christ. That we glory in Jesus Christ. And this passage basically is saying from really from chapter 4 all the way to here, that there's one representative that has never failed you, that will never fail you, that will never fail God, that has never failed God, and that's Jesus Christ. And you trust Him and focus on Him. And even now, as a Christian, maybe you're a Christian for 500 years and you're here this morning. You still need Jesus. Maybe even more than all of us. You need Jesus. No matter how old you are, you never outgrow Jesus and never outgrow his death on the cross for our sins. Is this repetitive? It is. It is repetitive. And there is, probably it's wrong in my heart, there's something sometimes where I think, you know, isn't, you know, something flashy, you know, something, something cool. I want to present something cool, Lord. Divide the water. You know, do a great miracle. Can you bring manna? just comes down in the congregation. And the whole time, God is saying, I died on the cross. I became a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sinners, and rose again. And I'm loving you in a special way, like I'm not loving anybody else. You're mine. I, I-, I love you. Preach that. And that gospel is the power of God. In fact, the more that we trust this supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, the more we'll not want to forsake him. And that's really the issue. It's, why would we want to forsake him? Because we don't see how beautiful he is in his supremacy and sufficiency. So draw closer and closer with Christ today than yesterday. Don't worry about Next year, last year, today, seek to draw closer to Jesus. He is real. Jesus Christ is real. He is really the Savior. And He is the King. And He's your King. And this passage says, He's waiting, verse 13, from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. Jesus Christ is not done with this earth. He's going to return. Either we see him when we die, or we see him when he returns. By God's grace, let nobody in this room forsake him, ever, but trust him. And you'll be blessed with a glorious eternity beyond belief. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you would do this atonement, this dying in the place, taking our wage upon yourself, that that your son would do that for us, Lord. We give you the praise and the glory and honor for that, Lord. We are not worthy of that. You are the worthy one. We praise you. We give you the glory. Amen.